If the ushers could start passing out these Hershey Kisses, I'd appreciate it. And what I have to ask you, kind of the point of this quick moment on delight, one of the roots of delight is paying attention. So chocolate is a huge distractor. So as it goes down the aisle, focus on listening to what I say, because I only have five minutes and Aaron's going to pull me off here. Um, They asked me to talk about delight and chocolate, and uh, that's an easy one. But let me... um, my glasses. Here's here's the bottom line up front, so if I get yanked off. To delight is to recognize and celebrate the ingenuity, the creativity, and the lavishly extravagant love of God. To delight is to recognize and celebrate the ingenuity, the creativity, and the lavishly extravagant love of God. And so what on earth does chocolate have to do with that? I'm going to what we're going to do is we're going to look at paying attention. We're going to look at connecting the dots. I'm going to tell you three stories, and it's going to end in chocolate. And over here, we're going to talk about the tongue. We're going to talk about the mind, and we're going to talk about community. And so we're going to start over here in the tongue. Kids are in here. Oh, and that reminds me. We're going to pray for offering afterwards, and then we're going to let kids go. So you get to eat chocolate, too. Um, the tongue. God designed it, and it has four types of taste buds on it. Sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. Well, that in itself is amazing. Uh, You can take those four things and literally we can recognize thousands of different flavors. From It's like color, like blue, red, and... What is it? Yellow. Yellow. Uh, Blue, red, and yellow, the primary colors. You can take those things and make infinitely amounts of color. Well, who thought up the the taste buds it's god it's paying attention underneath it and seeing god the beginning of delight is paying attention recognizing patterns and connecting the dots seeing god's hand behind the story and then if you start thinking about these taste buds why on earth flavor why have it to start with i can understand why to have it so that if you taste poison you know it's bad and you spit it out but i don't taste poison very often so why the good side of that why all these thousands of why steak and chocolate, and coffee, and Cinnabons, and fresh bread, and then butter on fresh bread. What? Why on earth? Here's why, I think. I, I would ask you to a- ask yourself that question. Tonight, say, why flavor? Because I think there's only one answer you can come up with, and it's this. I wrote it down. God loves to show off his immense creativity, and if he can make us smile in the process, he loves it all the more. That's the tongue. Well, guess what? He doesn't end there. Now come to the mind. And here's the wild thing. If you pay even... Pardon me, I'm getting excited. If you pay even more attention to it, taste is linked to smell. So have you done that, you know, that exercise where you blindfold yourself, you put an orange and a pear in front of you, and you do this, and you really can't tell the difference. And so he takes these other senses of ours, smell, and enhances this great flavor. And so when you do break that bread open, up comes our coffee in the morning. Man. He doesn't end there. So you take smell, and he links it to memory. And when I was dating Felicia, we, we lived 80 miles apart, and she has this wonderful, beautiful hair, and she washes it much more frequently than I do mine, and she washes it with, <laughs> at that time, I think it was Pantene. And so when I was around her, there's this aura of this smell. And one day, for a gift, she gave me a, a bookmark. I love to read. And it was wrapped in yarn. And unbeknownst to her, I'd go into her bathroom, and when I was visiting her, I'd take that pantene and I'd put it on the yarn. 
so that when I was back in Columbus, I have it beside my bed, and suddenly I'm back with Felicia. And guess who thought that up? Taste and smell and smell and memory. My goodness. And then the mind. No, then community. So let me tell you another story. And this is where our our chocolate's going to come in here in just a bit. The tongue, smell and memory, and now the Hale family. Picture this in your mind. If I close your eyes, we've got this big 12-passenger van. We go to, frankly, anywhere. Anywhere fun we go, we get a bar of chocolate. Be it Disney World, be it any excuse, frankly. Be it uh, the... Common Market has great chocolate. So we'll go there and we'll get rice. But nonetheless, so we're out. We finish all our shopping. We come out, and there's seven of us out in front of this van, and we open it up. And first of all, we just look at it. Some of them have poetry inside them. Some of them have that beautiful gold, and then we sing the Willy Wonka song. And um, We look at the chocolate, but it's broken into things so I can spread it around to my seven kids, and I don't get all the bad calories. If it were by myself, I'd eat the whole thing, but I can share it with my kids, and then if dark chocolate, I don't know if you've done this, if you pop it, it makes a different sound. 86 has a pop, and then 60 has a different, and so you'll see this family of hails pop in a parking lot, and then you smell it where it breaks. It's like we're taking drugs out in in the common market. (laughs) And in a way we are, but it's tied to that memory, is all these things And then when I am alone, when I travel, when I'm in Singapore and I get a chocolate bar, suddenly community is all around me and this lavish, extravagant gift of God that if I'd just worshipped the chocolate over here, I'd missed it all. But if I see all these things and connect the dot, delight is attached to attention. The more you pay attention. So I, I encourage you to eat chocolate together as a family. Today, we're going to do that as a community. And what I want you to do, now I understand some of you can't eat it, you're on diets or you're allergic or any of those things. Share it. Uh, give it to the person next to you. But together, we're going to open this thing up. We're going to look weird like the hails are out in a parking lot. We're going to open these up. And right now, oh, you've got to think of others. Make sure your tinfoil gets back in your pocket when it's all done. But look at it, first of all. Read up on Milton Hershey sometime. Fascinating man. And look at the thing he created here through God's help. Open it up. Go ahead and open it up. I don't have one. Thank you, R. Open it up. Hold somebody's hand next to you. God, not only smell and memory, but you know, touch and vision and all those things. Hold somebody's hand and then break the top off of it, that little tiny part. It's not as easy as dark chalk, and I encourage you to try the dark chalk. Break it off and smell it. Good gravy. And then just eat it. That's God's treat for us. Let me tell you it one more time. To delight is to recognize and celebrate the ingenuity, the creativity, and the lavishly extravagant love of God that He has for us. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We're going to pray here right now for the offering, and then we're going to release the children. So let's pray. Father, help us to pay attention. Help me to pay attention more. There's so many things that are going around that the world is just full of your glory. And in my busyness, I miss it, and I don't want to miss it. I want to have all these things. I want to 
catch that inside joke that you have, that inside smile that you have for us, these hidden things of grace. And it seems strange to me that attention is tied to delight, but it is. And so I pray that you'd bind the enemy where he wants us to be busy, that we'd be attentive, that our eyes would be open, that our senses would be open to see your lavish and extravagant love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God gives us delightful pleasures, and chocolate is one of those pleasures. (laughs) That's how good God is, to give us something to delight in. Even if the pleasure is very small, we can turn that moment into praise to God for his goodness. Sabbath is an invitation to delight, to become aware, to become attuned to the goodness of God. This last Wednesday, I finished the last segment of a treatment of a root canal. I became attuned to pain. And uh, it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday. I stepped out of the office, and the sun was shining. And the sky was crystal blue. And the wind was barely blowing. It's about 46 degrees. I just wanted to delight in the goodness of God in that moment. I wanted the sun to kiss my face. I wanted to feel the warmth of the sun upon not to be cold for a little while. I just wanted to savor that moment of delight. Yesterday I was having lunch with Matt and Betsy and delightful chili uh, Betsy had made. And Betsy was telling me about her niece who had written her a birthday card, an invitation to a birthday party entitled Aunt Elizabeth. And she colored it for her. And I was delighting in how much my daughter was delighting in her niece. Not only is Sabbath an invitation to delight, it's also an invitation to contemplate. And so the question I want you to contemplate as we begin this sermon is, what is the rhythm of my life as it pertains to engagement and not engagement? As it pertains to productive work and soul satisfying rest. Now, it really will help you to have a Bible for the sermon because we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 1. I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 as we look together at Mark's gospel. Before Jesus ever engaged in ministry, Jesus contemplated the voice of his Father. At that time... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. We know that when Joshua brought the people into the promised land, the Jordan River parted. But now an even more significant parting happens because the heavens were parted. The heavens were torn open. You can imagine heaven to being something like a curtain. The curtain of heaven was torn open. And as Ezekiel said, I saw the heavens open and saw a vision of God. Now when the heavens are open, something very significant is about to happen. The scripture says, as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. The spirit of God would come to dwell in the son of God, empowering him for service. Just like when you believe, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you and empowers you, enables you for service. You can never be the person God meant you to be. 
You can never do what God asks you to do apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he heard a voice. What did Jesus hear? Before Jesus ever does any ministry, he learns to be the beloved. Before he ever goes public, he does the interior work of the soul. If we do not contemplate our identity, that is to do the interior work, if we skimp on the interior work of the soul, the exterior will always suffer. So what did Jesus hear? You are my beloved son. The Father is saying, I have such fondness, such warmth and affection for you. You are my son whom I love. You are the son in whom I am well pleased. So I'd like you to say this to yourself. I am the beloved. Say that. I am the beloved. And turn to your neighbor and say, you are the beloved. And if it's your wife or husband saying, I'm claiming you are my beloved. (laughs) If you don't get your identity straight, you'll never make it in this world. And there's many questions I've heard pondered and contemplated. But nothing is more profound than, who am I? Elementary school, middle and senior high school, in college, in 20s and 30s, in your 40s and 50s and 60s, in the latter years of life. The question of who am I is something we return to over and over again. You need a clear sense of your identity to be who God made you to be, to do what God has called you to do. The identity of Jesus does not come from John the Baptist, did not come from the crowds, did not even come from his family. The words spoken over Jesus are also spoken over you, that you are the beloved son, the beloved daughter of God. That is your identity. Your inner work is to claim the identity that is your own. And this truth is so deep, it is able to transform your life. When somebody or something comes against you and you know your identity, it is like an anchor in the midst of a storm. And as I have studied this question of identity, I have discovered there are at least three false identities. So for future reference, for this moment, let me talk to you about false identity. One of the first false identities is, I am what I do. I am a provider. I am a mother. I am a social worker. I am an accountant. I am an engineer. I am a teacher. I am a businessman. I am an A student. I am a B student. I am a C student. (laughs) I am an athlete. I am a Packers fan. I am a Steelers fan. I am an Eagles fan. I am a Redskins fan. (laughs) Or I really don't care about football at all. That's my identity. But what happens to an A student when they get a B? Or what happens to a B student when they get an F? What happens to an accountant when Congress makes changes in the law and the IRS is slow in getting out the forms? What happens to the engineer when the engineering firm goes out of business? What happens to the provider who can't provide? If your identity is wrapped up in what you do and you can't do what you've always done, then you don't know anymore who you are. Your identity isn't defined by what you do. Your identity is defined by what God says you are. 
And he says, you are my daughter. You are my son. You are my beloved. You are the one in whom I am well pleased. So when you don't do well on a test, or you lose your job, or you become unemployed, you can still bank on the promises of God. You still know who you are at the core. The very same word spoken over Jesus is spoken over you as a believer, that you are God's beloved. You are the son, the daughter whom he loves. You are the one in whom God delights, the one in whom God is well pleased. Category number two, I am what other people say I am. If people speak well of you, you feel great. But if people speak poorly of you, you fall apart. What's that all about? A false identity is formed by caring too much about what others have said about you and then entering into agreement with that word. In our world, we'll experience a lot of criticism and contempt. People are defined often by their strength or by their weakness, by their beauty or their unattractiveness, by their intelligence or lack thereof, by their possessions. But when your identity is formed, people can speak bad about you and your day isn't shot. Category number three, false identity. I am what I have. Advertisers will spend billions of dollars today in the Super Bowl, Doritos, Budweiser, trying to convince you to buy their product, to buy their iPad, to buy their iPhone. That is to say, I am what I have. Politicians have power. Mubarak over in Egypt has power. And he's doing everything he can to hold on to his power. He believes that chaos will erupt if he relinquishes his power. Hear the cry of his people as they cry out for freedom. What's untold to you is that there are those with banners with a sickle and a cross crying out for freedom in the land of Egypt. And just as there was a cry 3,400 years ago, and God heard the cries of his people, he saw their misery, he saw their oppression, he heard their cries, and God gave freedom to his people. So God is working out a great process in the land of Egypt. And he's put Ashley Roderick there, not far from Cairo, to be present, to be a witness to the Egyptian people, and already... One person she's living with has come to Christ. God is at work through Ashley. We need to pray for God's protection over her. It was power that people seek after. Because the false identity is, I am what I have. And people with money like to say that they can buy and sell. And a celebrity has usually good looks. (laughs) And they get older and they get plastic surgery and they try to hold on to their good looks. Then the surgery doesn't work out and they don't know who they are anymore. They fall into despair. Getting older puts people into crisis. Why? Because they believe I am what I do, I am what others say I am, or I am what I have. Jesus knew his identity. He knew who he was. He heard his father say, you are my beloved son. You are the son whom I love. You are the son with whom I am well pleased. You are not what you do. You are not what others say 
you are. You are not what you have. So let that truth, in a contemplative sense, sink deep into your inner being. Somebody says something about you, it won't sink you into depression. When Jesus heard false things about him, he pulled away and got centered and anchored. He contemplated the voice of the Father. So he spent 40 days in the desert. They're contemplating the voice of God. You see, the contemplative life is to contemplate the beauty of God, to contemplate the love of God, to contemplate the holiness of God, to contemplate the very face of God. And Jesus would spend time, if you will, basking in the presence of the Father to hear his voice as to his true identity, to fill up his soul. So after John was put in prison, verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now we have good news also in our culture, right? It's going to snow. Or it didn't snow. Or they just plowed my street. That's good news, right? Or we're pregnant. That's good news, right? Or we're not pregnant. That's also sometimes good news. So we have good news, you see. The gospel is all about good news. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the very good news of God, that though your sin is very bad, there is salvation in the name of Jesus. There is forgiveness for your sins. That's what the good news is. There is the peace of God that passes all understanding. There's the joy of God that defies all outward circumstances. There's the love of God that God knows all about me and loves me. There's a power that God gives to his children through the gospel. That's why I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Jesus said the time is near, and the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is the rule of God in our lives. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. To be in the kingdom of God is to subjugate our will to the will of the Father and our desires to his desires, to take new territory for God. Now the problem is there's a lot of kingdoms and there's a lot of queendoms in our world. When we're two or three years old, we believe we have a kingdom, right? It's defined by me or mine or you can't have it. And then we try to expand our kingdom with little temper tantrums, two or three years old, when someone tries to take from us what we believe is ours. Jesus came to establish the kingdom. He came as the king. And he said, repent and believe the good news. If God was calling our nation to repent, what would God be speaking to our nation about, of how we have turned from God? You see, to repent is to change your mind. To repent is to change your direction. If you formerly were a Chicago Bears fan and became a Green Bay Packer fan, you would have repented. If you were headed east toward Baltimore and you changed your direction west toward Hagerstown, you would have repented. You see, what happened there was you changed your mind about something, you changed the direction of your life, 
So if God were speaking to our nation, and I believe he is speaking to our nation, what would he have us repent from? Would he speak to us about the sanctity of human life? Of how life is to be protected, the life inside the mother's womb? Would he speak to us about the sanctity of marriage? One of our teachers was asked this week, you know, what is abortion? And she said it's about it's about when a woman discovers she's pregnant and she terminates that pregnancy. You see, our land has turned away from God. We have deafened our ear to God. And God is calling our nation to repent. If God were speaking to you about your life, in what areas would he call you to repent, to change your mind, to change the direction of your life? When Jesus came proclaiming this good news, he said, repent and believe. You see, we turn from our sin in order to turn our face toward God, to see his smile, to see his love. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news, believe the gospel. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew, and they were casting their nets in the lake where they were fishermen. You see, at this point in their life, their life was all defined by fishing. They loved to go fishing. They loved their fishing boats. They loved their fishing nets. They loved their fishing business. And fishing was big business then. Fresh fish was considered a delicacy. And salted fish was sent as far away to places like Rome. So these fishermen could make a good living by being fishermen. Jesus came beside the Sea of Galilee, and he said these words, Come, I want you to follow me. Here is the most radical invitation to come and follow Jesus Christ, to change the path of your life, to come to him who is life, to find life, to enter into abundance, to have a really sweet life. Jesus was inviting them, he's inviting us to come and follow him, to follow him in the bad times as well as the good, to follow him to the high places as well as to the low, to follow Jesus Christ that we would be followers of him. We have a vision in our church that we will glorify God by being fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ through his transforming power. This church is all about showing you the path of Jesus that you can follow after him. And you know what they did? At once, they left their nets and they followed him. Jesus began talking about the kingdom. And he said, the kingdom of God is like a man in a field. And he discovers a treasure. And he leaves everything else behind to take possession of that treasure. And that treasure is God himself. And when you find this treasure, you will leave everything else in order to follow him. The call of Jesus to discipleship is to follow him. Now how he prepared himself for that message was through a life of contemplation. He was alone in solitude with his father, and his father spoke unto him. And he spoke the word he heard his father speaking unto him. So let's go now to verse 21 of the same chapter and notice a Sabbath in the life of Jesus. 
Jesus himself was a Sabbath keeper. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath from God to us is a gift, a gift we can receive. Sabbath is not something we have to do. Sabbath is something we get to do. Then when they came to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, the Jewish people then lit a candle at 6 o'clock in their house. They stopped their work, and they had a family meal, and they gathered together, and they rested that night. Then in the morning, they would go to synagogue together, and there they would hear the law and the prophets. They would recite the Shema. They would say their prayers and have fellowship with each other. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue, and there he began to teach. It was his practice to go to synagogue on Saturday. And if you travel to Israel, you can go to the town of Capernaum, there beside the Sea of Galilee, and you can see a synagogue from the second century, most likely built right on top of the synagogue where Jesus himself preached. Remember, it was the time of contemplation that filled his soul. At the synagogue, Jesus spoke out of that which was in his heart. Now, you know when you have to speak, it's always a good idea to prepare, right? So Jesus prepared himself for his public ministry by having a private time of contemplation with the Father. Because he did not neglect his inner world, his outer world was very powerful. And people were amazed at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority. He wasn't quoting the authorities like Hillel or Gamaliel. Jesus himself was the authority. He says, you've read it before, but I say unto you. Now, we don't know how long his sermon went, but there came a demon-possessed man who cried out in the synagogue. We know that the light of Jesus' teaching was too much for this demonized man. And just as foul things scurry from the light, when you lift a stone, evil spirits who love darkness also run from the light. This spirit recognized Jesus and hated him. This man wanted nothing to do with Jesus. The evil spirit wanted Jesus to go away. He asserted, you've come to destroy us. The spirit makes a frantic attempt to bring Jesus under his control by naming his adversary. Let me try to explain this to you. You've watched before like the World Federation Wrestling, right? You've seen something like that, where two people are in the ring to each other, and they begin taunting one another and naming their adversary. For instance, you know, you're the Incredible Hulk, and I'm going to make you bow down to me. Now, what's happening in that interchange is what the adversary is naming his adversary, believing he's going to conquer over him. So what's happening in this interchange is this evil spirit is naming Jesus, believing he has power over him. From this encounter, we know without a doubt that whenever the authority of Christ, the Son of God, is invoked in preaching or teaching. There is a violent confrontation with evil spirits that control men's souls. Foul spirits under the stones do not like to be disturbed. Talk to any pastor. Talk to me about it. Talk to any missionary. Talk to any evangelist. Talk to any person walking with the Lord, and they will tell you about spiritual warfare. What we're talking about here happening in the synagogue 
on the Sabbath is spiritual warfare. The demonized man was under the sway of evil. The spirit usurped the core of his personhood and utilized his voice. His voice was coarse and filthy and base. And there was a showdown between God and this fallen spirit, between good and evil. And I believe, just like there is here, there was a stone silence in that synagogue. And Jesus said to the spirit, be quiet, which means be muzzled. Our translation, shut up. And he said to the spirit, come out of the man. And the spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek and racked the man with convulsions. You see, whatever spirit has been tormenting you, whether it be a spirit of fear or a spirit of anger or a spirit of anxiety, whatever spirit has been tormenting you, I want to tell you there's greater power in the name of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said to that spirit, you shut up and you come out of that man. And I want to tell you, your life can be delivered by the name of Jesus Christ, by whatever is tormenting you today. There is hope for the tormented soul. I want to tell you, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's authority in the name of Jesus. There's hope for the hopeless man, for the one who finds himself in bondage. Jesus Christ can set you free. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because I've come to preach good news to the afflicted. And some of those afflicted ones are afflicted with all different manner of spirits. And Jesus Christ can set that soul free. He can set your soul free. And the people were so amazed by this, verse 27. They asked each other, what, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him? News about him spread quickly over the entire region of Galilee. Can you imagine the word kind of traveling through messengers all through the region of the power and authority of Jesus? But his Sabbath was not quite over. As soon as they left the synagogue, verse 29, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. The Sabbath was over, was not quite over yet. But once the service was over in the synagogue, they usually went to someone's house to have lunch. It seems here as if Peter has extended an invitation to Jesus to come to his house for lunch. And that's a beautiful thing to do in community, isn't it? To invite somebody, come on over, we're having a Super Bowl party. Come on over, we're having dinner. Let's, let's get together tonight and be together. Because the Sabbath was a time to stop, to stop your working. It was a time to rest from your labors. It was a time to delight in this, the goodness of God and to contemplate. So Jesus exits the synagogue and he enters Peter's house. But Jesus discovers that Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath is very ill. She's sick in bed with a fever. Literally, his mother-in-law was on fire. What they might have expected was to find a delicious meal. What they discovered was a sick cook. So we don't know how gravely ill the mother-in-law was, but she certainly wasn't feeling well enough to do anything. But we know from the other Gospels that Jesus rebuked this fever. So here's the composite picture of Jesus with his tenderness and his power. 
Jesus is standing near to her in the house, close to her in the bed. Jesus is rebuking the fever. Jesus is healing her from her affliction. Jesus is taking her by the hand, and Jesus is gently lifting her up. Jesus could have healed her by any means he chose. He could have asked her to go down to the Sea of Galilee and there take a dip. He could have poured some of that cold water from the Sea of Galilee on her head. But it seems very fitting, doesn't it, that Jesus would show his tenderness and his love by standing beside her, giving her a hand, and lifting her up. I remember many years ago, Debbie's mother-in-law, Dorothy, came to our home. And she battled with asthma. And this time she was having a bout with pneumonia. There was in the the church at the time a man by the name of Robert Hughes. And he had said to me, Pastor R, if you ever need help, call me. Well, it was about 2 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, and I called him on the phone. He asked me to meet him with Dorothy at his office. We arrived about the same time. He turned the lights of his office on, and then he put on a space heater. And once the place began to warm up, he asked Dorothy to come with him to examine her. He spent considerable time listening to her chest, seeing her condition, taking her medical history. And when it was all over with, he came out and he said, Dorothy's been taking 18 different medications. She only needs to take nine. What's amazing about that was, in a few moments with her, he confirmed the diagnosis from Mayo Clinic. She would go there in about a month or two, and they would say, Dorothy, you need to stop taking 18, just these nine. The very same that Bob Hughes had said. And he wrote for her a prescription, I think antibiotics to deal with the pneumonia. But he said, I can do better than that because I have a sample here in my office. And he went to his shelf and he took out the sample and he gave it to Dorothy so she could begin the medication right away. And I still remember the tender love of Dr. Hughes toward my mother-in-law. I mean, he didn't have to leave his family He didn't have to come to the office. He didn't have to stand beside her. He didn't have to listen to her chest. Surely didn't have to give her a sample of the medication. But he showed to me this precious incarnational love of Jesus Christ. I think what happened then was the mother-in-law made dinner (laughs) and everybody was happy. Now, I can't prove this from the text, but I think what happened next on the Sabbath for Jesus was I think he took a long nap. You know, he had been ministering the day before. He had been preaching in the synagogue. He had been healing uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He had had a lot of excitement. I think he was drained in his humanity. I think some of the most spiritual thing you can do is take yourself a long nap. Isn't it wonderful to take a nap and wake up with a chocolate chocolate chip cookie and a glass of milk? Just to be good to yourself. Just to take care of yourself. You see, you're always taking care of other people. But are you ever taking care of yourself? Even when you fly, you know, you have to give yourself a little oxygen before you give someone else some oxygen. You have to take care of yourself before you have some strength to take care of others. So in the Sabbath, what happens is we let God take care of us. And I think Jesus shows us this in this room, in this house. Because after he has a nice lunch, I think he lays down on the floor. I think Jesus takes a nap. Now, look with me at verse 32 of this text. It 
It says the people were quite amazed at his teaching. Wrong verse, 22, 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door. Now remember, it's the Sabbath, and Jesus is at Peter's house, and they've heard the story about what happened to his mother-in-law. So now all the sick and all the demon-possessed come to the door of that house. I mean, there's a line wrapped around that house. Over there, there's a guy, he's dealing with diabetes. And over there, there's a woman, she has an issue of blood. And there's a child dealing with asthma. And over there, this guy's got a spirit of pornography. And over here, this person has a spirit of seduction. And here's a person with a spirit of anger and a spirit of fear. And they're all lined up at the house. And notice what the scripture says. It says that Jesus healed the many of their various diseases. And he drove out their demons. It was an amazing day as Jesus showed his power just after the Sabbath. Where did he draw that power from? Because Jesus had rested on the Sabbath, he had power to minister at the going down of the sun. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? The Sabbath ran from Friday 6 p.m. to Saturday 6 p.m. This is happening after Saturday 6 p.m. And the people lined up for ministry. And Jesus was able to minister because he had rested on the Sabbath. If you go and you go and you go and you never ever rest, you won't have anything to draw from, to work with, or to minister from. Now notice in verse number 35, Jesus slowing and communing with his Father. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went to a solitary place where he prayed. It is safe to say that after healing the sick and after casting out the demons, Jesus was weary in his humanity. You know the kind of weariness where you can't take another step. The kind of weariness where it's an effort to put one foot in front of the other. We get exhausted from our day and what do we do? We turn on the television, right? Or we turn on the computer. <laughs> How restful really is that? How rested do you feel after you turn on the television? Jesus didn't have a TV to turn on. He had somebody better to turn to. He turned to his Father. You see, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, it was pre-dawn, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus lived in constant communion with his Father, practicing the very presence of God, asking his Father, what do you desire in this very moment? Because Jesus valued solitude and silence. He loved to be in the Father's presence, pouring out his heart, unpacking what was stored up inside of him, and listening to the Father's voice. I want you to see that Jesus had a rhythm to his life. He could be on in public. He could also be off in private. Jesus could be with people dealing with all that stress and chaos because he went to be with his Father in a solitary place. 
Jesus' outer life flowed out of his inner life. Jesus' doing flowed out of his being. Our culture, there is no being. It's all about doing. See, we're called to love God and love others out of our being. Being always calls us into contemplation. Ministry flows out of our being. So when we skimp on this inner work, we'll always come short in the outer work. What's kind of funny about the story is in verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for Jesus. And that's what happens, right? When you're trying to have a quiet moment, somebody's trying to interrupt you. So now the disciples come looking for Jesus, and they said, everybody's looking for you. You know, Jesus, you're a rock star, right? We can make a theme park here in this town because everybody's seeking after you. But Jesus did not come for their praise. He said, let's go to other towns and preach there also. Because Jesus had contemplated in the presence of the Father, he would not become derailed or persuaded to step outside of the Father's will. One last story. Verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. Now in Jesus' day, they didn't have medicines to deal with leprosy. To get leprosy was like to have a death sentence. Entire villages could be wiped out with leprosy. And there was a great fear of contracting this disease. People had never seen this power over disease like Jesus had exhibited with the mother-in-law, with the crowds. So now this leprous man hears about Jesus. It was said that two signs of the coming will be, the kingdom will be, when he raises up the dead and when he heals the lepers. And I want you to know that when Jesus saw this man, he didn't see a leper. He saw a human being. Why did Jesus see here a human being? Because he hadn't skimped in his inner world. Now he was powerful in his outer world. Because he had spent time in the presence of the Father, he was operating out of his being. You see, Jesus was able to minister publicly because he took quiet moments privately. privately. You see, Jesus felt compassion for this man. Where does the compassion to show this world come from? It comes from our solitude. It comes from our silence. It comes from our contemplation of the great love of God. God, as you have loved me, help your love to flow through me to people. And when Jesus saw this man who was leprous, he felt great compassion for him. And the man said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You see, the man had gone his entire life saying, I am unclean, I am unclean. And his voice had become hoarse from his leprosy. And Jesus looked with compassion upon the man and said, be clean. And immediately, the leper was made well. Let me ask you a question. Are you ever quiet enough to listen to what God is saying to you? Being with God is like divine therapy. If we don't let God touch the deepest attachments of our life, like being in control, being defined by what other people say about us, being defined by what I do, if I lose my job, I'll become a loser. If we don't let God touch those deepest attachments, we will never become free. But if we let God touch the deepest places in us and to hear his voice, 
that you are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. Then God can begin to strip off some of those outer layers. And God can heal the core of us. You see, it's all about getting still enough to listen to his voice. In our Western culture, it's all about doing. We wake up, we do. We go to work, we do. We come home, we do. Then we put the TV on and collapse. I'm talking to you about the contemplative life that has a rhythm between being and doing. Invite the praise team out. Pray with me, would you please? Father, here we are in this place, and our culture would push us to do and to do and to do. We may find ourselves a slave to our doing. It's so hard for us to stop and to rest and to delight and to contemplate, to savor your goodness, to contemplate your beauty, to consider your love, to rejoice in your salvation, to experience freedom, to find true community, to really enter into the contemplative life and consider what really matters. Father, I pray for each person here as they hear this sermon that there might be a little step in their week finding this rhythm between resting and working, between engaging and disengaging, between contemplating and being and ministering out of that contemplation. I pray, Lord, that you will fill us in our inner being with the truth, that we might be able to speak the truth to one another. And the truth I hear you saying to me, Father, through your spirit is, tell the people to rest. Father, we hear that word, to rest, to rest in your presence, to take care of ourselves, that we can take care of others, to receive this Sabbath as a gift. Thank you for this precious gift and this great example of your son, of how he lived his life. Father, help us go and do likewise, we pray in Jesus' name.